know, we, we've been, uh, over the last, I can't even remember how long it's been, a year, maybe even more than a year, doing a, a kind of systematic uh, <clears throat> series of, of teachings that go through the, the Dharma. We started with the first noble truth, second noble truth, third noble truth, then the fourth noble truth, which is the Eightfold Path. We've been working our way through the Eightfold Path, and we went through uh, right understanding and right intention and right speech and right action and right livelihood, and now we're up to right effort. And, well, before we started this, a little over a year ago, most of the emphasis of the teaching had been on meditation. So uh, the next part of the Eightfold Path after you know, right effort, right uh, uh, concentration, and right mindfulness, this is the last part of the Eightfold Path. And this division is, is called the division of meditation. So we really come back to meditation. And after right effort comes right concentration and right mindfulness, which it brings us back to the nitty-gritty of sitting practice and all of that sort of thing. So we'll, we'll have made, we'll have finished the complete cycle once we finish talking about right effort. Right effort, also joyful effort. You should think of it as joyful effort. It's, it's pulling together everything. It's making, when you combine it with the meditation and the understanding and the virtue, you know, then right effort is living the Dharma in your entire, in every aspect of your life. Not just the sitting practice, but every other part of the practice. So this is the part of the Dharma that we're talking about now. Right effort, joyful effort, basically making the effort 24 hours a day, and I mean that literally, 24 hours a day, to, to live and practice the Dharma, combining your sitting practice and the other forms of formal practice, walking meditation, loving-kindness meditation, everything else. With, with everything else that you do. So 24 hours a day. This, this, is, this is the ideal. This is the point we're at. And it's really what I came here for. Uh, more on that later. Um, but the specific part of this larger Dharma that I want to talk to you about tonight is the Sangha. Most of you know that in traditional Buddhism, and this goes back to the time of the Buddha himself, which was before there was Buddhism. I like to remind people the Buddhist, the Buddha was not a Buddhist, and he probably never would have been. <laughs> he wasn't big on religions, and he certainly didn't plan on founding one. But <clears throat> going back to the, the original uh, life and teaching of the Buddha is these three refuges, uh, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. The Buddha, the refuge in the Buddha is actually the refuge in awakening as a real possibility. That's what re taking refuge in the Buddha means. It means seeing the example of the human being who lived and died, who we call the Buddha, 
seeing example of all of the people who have followed in that path and achieved to the same awakening. We take refuge in the reality of that awakening, the possibility of that awakening, the accessibility of it, the accessibility to each of us individually. And we take refuge in the Dharma, which is the collection of teachings and practices which guide us to achieve that awakening. And we take refuge in the Sangha. And the refuge in the Sangha is one that uh, a lot of people don't really quite understand, including a lot of people who call themselves Buddhists. Because the Sangha is often thought of as, you know, that's the that's the community of monks and nuns, the ones that hold the tradition and pass it on from generation to generation and teach the lay people about it and things like that. But that's, <clears throat> the, the, the Sangha is much more than that. Sangha means, it really means community. And at the time of the Buddha, the Sangha did consist of monks and nuns. It consisted of the people that gave up the householder's life uh, to wander around wearing robes made out of other people's discarded rags, eating whatever food people would put in their bowl when they knocked on their doors in the morning, and uh, basically either living, living in the forest or living in places that had been set aside for the purpose by generous people. So. Originally, that community was a very strong, very coherent community of people who had made major sacrifice to become part of it. Would you agree that was major sacrifice? I know some people might say, oh, I'd like to give it all up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Except nowadays it's harder to do for many reasons, not the least of which is that uh, our society is not nearly as eager to, to feed and support people that wander around doing nothing but meditating and uh, contemplating ultimate truth. But even at that time, it was, a, it was a major commitment and it made them stand out from everybody else. It was a very, very strong community. And through the millennia, in the form of the ordained monks and nuns who lived in monasteries uh, in Buddhist countries, that particular Sangha and community has been continued and perpetuated. There is uh, a larger Sangha, though, that has been acknowledged since the time of the Buddha. It's been acknowledged, but it hasn't ever received the emphasis that it should have and deserve. The larger Sangha is all of those people who embrace and, and practice these teachings. Uh, and you find, uh, if you go back and read the sutras, that the Buddha spoke of many lay people, many lay people who had become awakened, many lay people who uh, were amongst the foremost teachers of the Dharma during his life at that time. They're part of this larger Sangha. And there has been a, 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 an acknowledgement, but it's almost kind of a tiny, tacit, you know, yeah, it's true, but we don't talk about it much kind of acknowledgement. 
that in addition to the ordained monks and nuns, there has always been this larger sangha of, of lay people who totally embraced the teaching and tried to practice it. And if you go back and you look at the history of Buddhism in different traditions, you're going to find a lot of examples of incredibly important lay people. Some of them who even have founded uh, major branches within Buddhism that persist to this day. But nevertheless, it's not an aspect of Sangha that has been much emphasized. The place that I come from, and the place that brought me to be teaching, and that makes me so gratified to have this room full of you here, and these people that have been coming to these teachings for several years now, is that I realize the time has come that the most important Sangha, the real Sangha, is the Sangha of lay practitioners. They're the ones that are going to make a difference in the world. They're the ones that need to be awakened. They're the ones that need to discover the secret that allows us to transcend our personal suffering and allows us to stop being the agents of suffering of other beings in the world. And even more than that, this lay sangha, as it develops and as, as it realizes its power, can do something that the ordained sangha was never able to do. And by the nature of the way it's set up, could never do. And that is to change the world. We have to change the world. I would guess, I'd be surprised if there's anybody in this room that doesn't realize that the world's a, a big mess right now. And it's not getting particularly better. And something really drastic has to happen to, uh, to change things. You know, we, my image of this world is <clears throat> picture a, a, a boat on one of those, those rivers in South America, you know, the one that comes to giant waterfall and cataract drops mm -hmm. thousands of feet into this big pool, you know. And before you get to the waterfall, it's just this big, wide, placid river, moving very quickly. And, and I see where we all are, is we're all in the same boat, and the boat is heading at very high speed towards that waterfall, and uh, we're all squabbling and hitting each other in the head with paddles and stuff like that. And the few people who are paddling are all paddling in different directions. <laughs> as the whole boat <laughs> continues. So, so the important Sangha, what I, I think if, if the Buddha had been around and able to steer things uh, uh, earlier, uh, the, the Sangha that would have developed and that would be the Sangha in the world today is the lay Sangha. There's all these millions and billions of people. Uh, for whom this, for whom this path and this awakening is intended, and who want and need to own it, and once they do, uh, they could possibly get the boat turned around. Uh, I'll throw this in though. The interesting thing is, once this Dharma has done its work on you. 
two things happen. You're more capable and you're more dedicated of producing change in the world than you ever were before. The other thing that's quite interesting is you're totally unattached to the results. And so you do the best that you can, but you're not at all worried about how it turns out. There's, there's no discouragement, and despair, and depression. You know, so. so this is the lay sangha that I want to see developed, and I want to do what I can to help come into being. And you're it. Right? The Sangha is community. And um, so we need to talk about community. Each other, your companions, the people that you, you spend your time with, the people who you learn from, who you teach and who teach you. Uh, and the people that when you join forces with, physically and psychically and otherwise, uh, give rise to a great power that goes beyond, goes far beyond the sum of its parts. When we come together in community, we create something, it's a, if it's a community of 50 people, we create something which is far more powerful than 50 times what the most powerful member of that community is by itself. Many, many times more powerful. And that's what our potential is. So I want to talk to you about community. Um, one time, Ananda, Ananda was the Buddha's uh, cousin, and uh, he became the Buddha's primary attendant. He, he spent, he, he was with the Buddha all the time. Uh, he helped him took care of him when he needed to. Uh, as a matter of fact, what we know about Buddhism today is primarily due to Ananda, the Buddha's cousin. Ananda had a phenomenal memory, and he heard virtually every talk the Buddha ever gave and memorized those. And then after the death of the Buddha, after 45 years of the Buddha's teaching, Ananda wasn't with him the whole time, but he was with him most of the time. After 45 years of his teaching, nothing was written down in those days at all. Nothing. But there was a, 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 a conclave, a, a meeting of the Buddha's chief followers. And Ananda recited, this, this took a period of months, he recited by memory all the things that he had ever heard the Buddha teach. And everyone else went to work memorizing them. Eventually, they did get written down. But we know what the Buddha taught because Ananda memorized it, and then after the Buddha's death, Ananda shared it with everyone else, and, and that's why we have it now. But anyway, Ananda and the Buddha were really close, spent a lot of time together. And one evening, sitting around the campfire, actually, he didn't have campfire. <laughs> sitting around somewhere Ananda says to the Buddha he says is, is it true that noble companions are half of the holy life now you have to keep in mind noble companions and holy life are English translations of, of Pali words essentially was he 
he, what he was saying is, uh, are your friends, companions, compatriots, the people that you live and eat with, uh, are, are they an important part of the spiritual life, of the path to awakening, of, su of success in this grand endeavor? And the Buddha's response obviously surprised Ananda, cut him off guard a little bit. He said, no, 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 don't say that, Ananda. And this, this is what it says. No, 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 don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. He said, noble companions are the whole of the spiritual way. Okay. Which doesn't mean you hang out with your friends, you don't have to practice meditation. <laughs> but, oh, I think you know it that you cannot un underestimate the importance of companionship, of community. Remember that Buddha had welded together a really powerful community. People who they didn't always get along by any means. And that would, that would have been a miracle beyond anything that's ever been recorded in uh, in any spiritual tradition. Somebody could make uh, thousands of people all get along. They didn't all get along, but they all shared views and beliefs in common, and they were all dedicated to helping and supporting each other. They all had a common goal. They all had a common path that they were following. But the, the common goal was was awakening realization, or as the Buddha himself spoke of it, said, what I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. That's what we mean when we say awakening. No. Um, they did have this common goal. That's They did all take refuge in the Buddha. No, not this guy. They thought he was wonderful. When they took refuge in the Buddha, they were taking refuge in the awakening that he had achieved, and also the awakening of the other people that were sitting around in these discussions with them who had also achieved that awakening. Thousands of them, literally. This is what we're told. Um, that was one of the messages of the Buddha, is that uh, awakening is not something for sometime in the future. It's not something for after you die. It's not something for some future lifetime. Awakening is for this lifetime. And the other thing that was a core part of his teaching was that it's available to everyone and this is the way to achieve it. That's the Dharma. That's, he spent 45 years teaching it to different people and in different ways. Uh, that's the other thing that the Sangha that he formed had in common. They had the same goal. They also had the same understanding of um, how how things work and how it is that that goal could be achieved. What was the means to accomplishing that end? They had that in common. And so their refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma was a large part of what made them a powerful Sangha, a powerful community. Now I think that we have something similar here. I think what brings you all 
into this room, and you spent all this time listening to me talk, is that you all have similar wishes, you can see similar possibilities for what can be, and that you found that this method and this teaching resonates with you. So basically you're here because we all have similar goals. Now if we went from person to person, and actually it would be a wonderful thing, I'd love to do that, go from person to person and see how you see those goals. But it will range from those people who, you know, if they're really honest about it, the goal is to somehow get beyond the suffering and difficulty and frustration that they see in life. The existential angst that they experience of, you know, what is what is the point of all this? You know, there's, there's, there seems to be no end of, of suffering and evil in the world. It grows from that to those of you who uh, you see the goal as liberating everybody, all sentient beings, from this suffering. And so you all have a similar goal. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have been here so many Thursday nights if you hadn't started out with something in you that brought you here, brought you into these kinds of situations, caused you to pick up and read the books you did, caused you to sign up for the university course you did. Whatever, you, you had that in you. And then what you found in this teaching, and although you may not have realized it that much, you may have not consciously thought of it again, you may have a community of people who, who shared that. So you're here because we do have this commonality of a goal and a belief in its uh, uh, in its achievability, its attainability, and we have in common uh, a, a belief that this is a way that can lead to that. So, what we need to do now is to become a really strong community. And this is what I've been thinking about. How do we take a group of people who get together every now and then because they share the same beliefs and aspirations, the same hopes and the same wishes. They get together every now and then because of that. How do we make them into a community? That's what's been on my mind. And that's what I'd like for us to talk about. And I'd like to hear from you. Do you feel like you're a part of a community when you come here? How many of you feel like you're a part of a community? How many of you like all these people and wouldn't mind being more connected with them and having a stronger community, but You'd have to say, yeah, but, you know, it doesn't really feel like that for me yet. Yeah? Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, of course, some of you are here for the first time. And some of you may have been here a number of times already. Be in a place that, uh, that 
what you'd probably say is, well, I like this, it wouldn't come back otherwise, if I didn't like it, if I didn't find it interesting. But I don't know, you're asking me to get involved in, um, I don't think so, at least, at least not yet. I'm not a joiner, right? Not only that, who knows what kind of sect this is, this guy talks me into it. Next, next thing, who knows, he'll, he'll want my bank account or sleep with me. But I, I think we've got the makings of a really strong community. We just have to figure out how to make that happen. So, talk to me. How how do we how do we realize our full potential, considering that our our full potential doesn't lie in our separate individuality. It it our full potential lies in what we can accomplish working together with other people, uh, loving those other people, and empowering those other people and allowing them to empower us. Yeah? Well, I don't, I don't believe that my answer is an easy one. But I think that one builds community by actually doing something together, actually having a common goal and saying, you know, well, let's get together on Saturday and raise that barn for Ned and his wife, or something like that. And that gets hijacked by... Actually, can we just stop there? Yeah. We'll continue with the hijacked part later. How many people agree with that? Build community by doing something together. And how many people disagree with that? Hmm, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, right. I'm just saying. <laughs> I agree totally. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say that was a brilliant and insightful answer. Now let's get to the hijack. <laughs> it gets hijacked by uh, the creation of stand in and bureaucracy. Well, gosh, gee. I don't actually have any real talents to, con to, to contribute here. There isn't anything I can actually do. I'm not very good at barn raising. I guess I could keep the library, or I could shovel the walk, or, you know, and these stand-in behaviors of, I would, like to com I would like to contribute something. So we all have these things that we could do, and everybody's all a little special snowflake, but nobody's pulling all in the same direction on one barn. Well, now... Okay, let's look at this a little more closely. So, community is doing things together. But, you know, okay, let's use the, the barn metaphor. So, what do you do after the barn is raised? What's the purpose of why raise a barn to begin with? Is it not a part of something bigger? Okay. Now, you mentioned a lot of other things that somebody could do. They mm -hmm. could take care of the library. They could do whatever. Who knows? Some really simple things. Some really complex things. Everybody has different skills. Everybody has things that they could offer. Of course, if they think the whole raison d'etre of the community is to raise a barn, 
it might seem to them that they don't have anything to offer. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. And so, but I'll bet you everybody in this room is smart enough that they can figure out for themselves there's more to it than raising the bar. Yet, I think you are right that something is getting hijacked along the way. Because all the people that could be doing something else, but they're not, and it may be that their rationale is that, well, I'm not good at barn raising. So, what if we could go a little deeper? Yeah. I think leadership has a big role in this. I'm sitting here trying to think of groups that are leaderless that accomplish anything. And I couldn't think of one. Well, you know, it's funny. I can think of so many leaderless groups that accomplish so much. One leaderless group is this group of cells that makes up your body. Well, I'd like to think I had some, something to say about what they're doing. Uh -huh. Exactly. Exactly. You like to think that, but but your behavior, I won't feed you anymore. And, and that'll help. Your your kidneys stop excreting things that are not good for you, and you can punish your kidneys by not eating anymore. Yeah. I can think as a matter of fact, when I look at nature, I find the most common pattern in nature are things that are entirely bottom up. They're the flock of starlings that we talked about. You know, as a matter of all the really important things in the universe, at the level below the human being and the level above the human being, tend in general to be leaderless. But I grant you the way human minds work, what we're programmed to do is that we want a leader. And there's two kinds of people. There are leaders and there are followers. And there's many more followers than there are leaders, which is good. Um, but if we look at the way human beings organize things, companies, and nations, and boards, boards, and everything else. We do, we do rely on kind of a top-down thing. We need leadership. It needs to be a president of the board, otherwise the board meetings are chaotic and nothing gets accomplished. And there needs to be a board, otherwise the organization uh, is, is even more chaotic and unravels and falls apart even more quickly. So in human nature, we do need leaders, and we do need this top-down part of it. But I think if you were to compare different communities of human beings, you'll find leadership is an important factor, but in the ones that are really successful, you'll find that uh, not only successful, but do something really worthwhile, laudable, good, so on and so forth, that there's a huge bottom-up component, too. When you, when you just have the leadership and everybody else is the followership, you get Nazi Germany, right? You get, you get all of these 
institutions, corporate, political, everything else, that become the where everyone else just becomes the means for the expression of this this thing at the top, this being at the top. You know, good organizations. There's a balance between leadership from above and leadership from below, and the leaders above listen to the leaders below. So I think we should keep that in mind. So I would agree with you. We're human beings, and the way humans work, we got to have some leadership. But it would be a big mistake to say, well, that's all we need, because otherwise we'll get some strong person to come along, and they'll take over, and we'll end up with a, a, a little tyrant argument. What we'll end up with is a sect. <laughs> we'll end up with a sect. Right. Yeah. I'm wondering about, I don't have an answer, uh, but I'm wondering about the, the, the concept of continuity mm-hmm. and continuity. Uh, I, I've been away for three months, yeah. um, and I'm sitting in this room and for the first time, and I'm looking around, and I don't know half the people in this room. Yeah. And... In a larger sense, over four or five years that I've been coming here, maybe four, I can't remember. Anyway, the, the change, the flux of people in and out is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. The flux of leadership uh, and people you know, running things and <clears throat> has changed incredibly. Um, but Every, and also, the everyone is kind of spread out. For instance, I was going to do something here today that I didn't have time to do, which would have created a little bit of community, because I was doing another kind of community. I was uh, meeting uh, Autumn and uh, Autumn's baby. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a, uh, that's someone who's come here a lot, uh, Autumn and Jordan, and they just had a baby. And um, so they have a food thing set up, and I brought over my food and held a baby for an hour, which was wonderful. That that felt like community. I wouldn't know these people if I hadn't come here. They're not here because they have a baby. Mm-hmm. And they may not be here for a long time because of that. Uh, I don't know if Jordan is still teaching because he had the baby. And he used to teach on alternate Thursdays. So... Uh, something we all know is that everything changes. Mm-hmm. And within that incredible change, just the fact that I have some community over there on Tree Street, but they're not here. I met them here. There are a lot of people here I've never seen before in my mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Glad to see you all. Mm-hmm. And, um, and how does that make for community? Or how mm-hmm. do you, you're in the stronghold, I'm in the two, over the Tucson Mountains. I don't know where all these people live. They, we're, we live in a huge, spread-out city. Yeah. So I'm wondering what kind of con- continuity is is a positive thing mm-hmm. for the sense of community, and what gets sort of too precious and too secty that mm-hmm. nobody wants. But so I'm just throwing that out. These are questions that we have to ask, you know, and... Uh, this is one of the things when, when you look at groups and organizations that are 
strong and successful and those that tend to struggle. Organizations to struggle are always losing people and always having new people come in. They don't have that continuity. The stronger ones have uh, a core that holds it all together and provides the continuity. And they have a whole lot of people that just drift in and out. The strongest ones, though, it's kind of the other way around. They are a community. And yes, things change. Yes, people come and go. But the coming and going does not define the community. The community is defined by the long-term consistency of the same people being involved. This is what a real community is. And this is one of the problems that I see that we have with TCMC and that we have uh, on Thursday nights, is that, you know, we're, we're strong in the sense that we do have a really solid core of people that have been coming for years and participate and uh, interact and things like that. But we have a much too large population of people that drift in and drift out. Yes. Right? Yes. And really to say to say that we're going to create a community what we're really saying is well we have a community we have the nucleus of the community we've got to grow that and no matter what there's always going to be people like Jordan and Autumn that uh, for one reason or another withdraw permanently temporarily whatever the, the thing is that this or is the nature of life people like Brian who come back and you have people like Brian that come back yeah <laughs> Brian's not here. No, but he came back the break. Some people come back, but they don't always come back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and, and that's the thing. So when we talk about a community, what we're really talking about is increasing the size of that group. Of the core group. Of the core group. That's what I thought and, you were Until, yeah. you know, we have the group is this big and the core is this big. And that's our weakness. We want to become strong. The group is this big, and the core is this big. And yeah, people come and go. It's part of life. It's the way sure. it happens. So we have to understand, what is it that unites that core together? If we can figure that out. You see, part of my saying this, I need to clarify it, is I believe that in addition to you being here because you find meditation and dharma to be important and valuable in your life. Another part of why you're here, and you, it, it, you may be very aware of it, or you, it may have nearly never occurred to you, but part of why you're here is that every time you come here, there's some really wonderful people. And it's, it's one of the places that you go in your life where there are more people that you can that you can relate to, that you can understand, that you can share things with, that you can love. And whether you thought about it or not, what that is, is part of you has been going through this fractured world we live in, you know, where you don't necessarily know the other people on the same street or in the next door apartment or things like that. You may not really know the, the names of the partners and children of the people you work with, things like that. This is a scattered, fractured world, and I think we're all human beings. 
longing for and looking for community. And I think part of why you come here on Thursday night is there's a part of you saying, you know, I would like to be in community with those people. So that's what we have to develop. That's what we have to tap into to satisfy what we really want. You know, when I was exploring this a year ago, um, I went off to the Unitarians to see what was going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a preacher, mm -hmm. teacher, uh, and and then there was um, subgroups, because the same thing was going on. That pastor would come and go. Yeah. Uh, the people that were coming into the organization would come and go. But those substructures didn't change. There was the position of pastor. And then there was um, a Sunday morning breakfast, okay, where everybody got the chance to come together as a community and chat if you wanted to. Right. All right. And then there was the, uh, the children's uh, um, um, uh, the equivalent of Bible study. Going on. Yeah, I let's see. You know, okay, I to to tell you the truth, I was cheating and before tonight I have been thinking and reading and, and studying a little bit about this. People have compared these groups and rated them in terms of their strengths and their weaknesses and what makes them strong. The Unitarians is, you know, a these are the strongest groups and these are the weakest groups. And unfortunately, Unitarians are down here, the weak groups. They have a structure that allows them to persist, but that is their main problem. Come and go, come and go. People don't stay, people don't commit, people don't get involved, people don't participate. As a matter of fact, they remind us a lot of what happens here. Is that, you know, there's a core that keeps it going. And they're big enough and they have structure uh, in place. And the whole strength of the Unitarians is the ideas and beliefs. People join the Unitarians because they resonate with those ideas and those beliefs, and that's where their strength comes from. But as far as a community goes, as far as a church, as far as an organization, on the spectrum they're pretty weak. We're, we're the Unitarians of the local <laughs> Buddhist community. And that's what I'm saying. Now, I should tell you the other part. The ones at this end that are really strong, they're the Mormons and the Seventh-day Adventists and the uh, and sects, you know, groups that you would call sect. And it would be the most horribly discouraging thing if the conclusion that we drew is that we have to follow the pattern of these groups in order to be strong. You know. But the wonderful thing is that people have been studying these groups and they have dissected out what it is about them. They're not the only strong groups, fortunately. But they have dissected it out and, and, and tried to understand what are the features and what are the elements that make a group strong. And, of course, those are elements that, that the Mormons and the Seventh-day Adventists and the various sects of different kinds all have in common. The thing is, we can be strong by understanding those principles without, without I, I, 
I mean, I don't want to offend anybody. If there's anybody in this room that was, that was Mormon or Seventh-day Adventist, I, I don't, I, I don't, that's not my intention. But what I'm saying is that I know that most of the people in this room don't particularly want to be part of something that operates the way the Mormon Church and the Seventh-day Adventists do. But they would like to be a part of a community that, that, is, that is that strong and internally that stable, but doesn't, doesn't have to have those undesirable features. And I believe that's possible. So that's what we're really talking about tonight. As I'm asking you to help me, not just tonight, but as an ongoing part of our as an ongoing part of our practice and our Dharma development, is to see if we can find the secrets of building really strong community without having to resort to those particular means that most of us find distasteful. That's what we're after. So what about this? I I have a very different feeling about community. For me, it is not necessarily um, a physical thing to do things together. I come here for the teaching. I come here for you as a teacher, and I come here for supporting the Sangha, but I there's almost the purity I love. I don't want to go to the movies with everybody or to exactly. breakfast or whatever. But when I sit in the morning meditation by myself, I think about the, sang the Sangha and the teacher, and I draw on this energy. So for me, community uh, is, is an energetic thing. I feel that connection, and it's enough for me. And it's not because I'm not getting involved. I am involved in stuff. Right. Maybe that is because I live in a come from another country and have a very strong community there too and I feel it energetically all the time. I don't need to do it on a physical level. Right. So what is that? What you, okay, that's, that's, that's really good. What you're doing is you're pointing to the difference between the kind of community that may be strong but we don't want to be a part of and the kind of community that we would like to have uh, but without, without those features. You see, uh, one of the things that sects do is that the only people you interact with are the other members of the sect. Well, I, I mean, not the only people, because there are, but it's minimized. A sect gets its strength by minimizing that. They take, you know, we don't want to do that. We don't want to, and I, you probably don't even like the movies I do, you know. We always went to the movies together. Uh, one or the other of us is going to be happy, unhappy uh, a lot of the time. No. The, a community, I, I think a healthy community, is not isolated. As a matter of fact, a healthy person is a member of a number of communities. Right? Yeah. And each community that they're a part of corresponds to certain aspects of, of, of who they are. But each of those communities, its value lies in the fact that we do come together because we do have shared beliefs and values. We do feel comfortable with each other. And more importantly, we support each other, we help each other. And this is the whole point of the Sangha in Buddhism, is that the purpose of the Sangha is we support and help each other. You know, we, we pick each other up when we fall down. We help each other out. But it doesn't mean that, that we have to uh, 
to, uh, we don't have to all live together. We don't have to spend all of it. It's, it's 8.30, so uh, I'm just getting warmed up and it's time for everybody to go home. Anyway. Uh, could, I, could I ask one more question? Yes. What would, um, what would community look like to you based on the fact that we meet um, with you every other week yeah. and um, there are retreats and uh, for some of us, there are okay. community meetings. What well, I, what I really want to do is, is I want to hear what community is to everybody else, and I want to hear it in such a way that once you say, well, this is what community is to me, that you don't become petrified in that idea so that you have to stick by it forever. What I would really like is for us to all start thinking about what community is to us and what we want. And to be able to exchange that in a way that we're open to refining our ideas, changing our ideas, discovering at a deeper level of ourselves. See, the thing is, if you ask a particular person what community is to them and what they want, the answer you're going to get back is going to be a reflection of all their bad community experiences in the past, plus all their unrealistic wishes for things that just aren't practical to happen in this world, you know, so, and that's fine. I want to get that from you. But then I want you to be open to keep refining that and say, well, okay, my bad experience is notwithstanding. <laughs> this is what my vision is, and this is what I would see. So I'm, I'm willing to share my vision of community, but I don't want to be the author of the group vision of community. Oh, of I not. want to see us evolve that through sharing and, and, and deepening our understanding and learning together. One of the things, I'll just tell you a little bit, the degree to which this is a community will be reflected by the, by the interactions that you have with each other outside of a formal event, like between 6 o'clock and 8.30 on Thursday night. You know, so long as the only time you see each other is at these formal occasions, to me, you're not really a community yet. So that's one of the things that we do. Okay. But I'm not saying that you're gonna you're gonna see everybody all the time. You know, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that there 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 are bonds that go beyond just when we're here. You know. And, uh, the rest of the time we see each other on the street, we pretend we don't know each other. I think there's a lot of that already. I think there is too. Yeah. I see it, especially in, you know, the, the core is a poorly defined thing. I think there's several different aspects of community. And I think the, the core of the core are that group of people where all these aspects are present. And the outer fringes of the core where are, are where only one or two of these as, aspects of community are present. So there are people here where there's a lot of, as a result of coming here, friendships have been formed. You do have contact with each other outside of this. Uh, and uh, that's, that's, really, that's really an important part of it. But that's part of my definition of a community. Only a part. It's only one part. And it doesn't... If we have a community of 
100 people, it's highly unlikely that all 100 people are going to be interacting with each other. As a matter of fact, uh, we'd be starting to get so inbred that we'd look more like a sect then, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't want us to be a sect. But if you, have, if you do care about people here in a way that carries beyond the front door, then you are part of a community. And that's just one of the aspects. Anybody want to say anything? I'm keeping you after school. I know. No, I was looking at you. Okay, me. Yeah. Um, I'll just say like three thoughts that I have. I think they'll be three. Um, one is that when you say community, what I'm hearing, um, like swimming within that, is this idea of culture. And mm -hmm. like, what's the culture of our community? What's like the tone and the timber of it? And culture is built on um, like certain like rituals or events or things and when you were describing oh well there's always Sunday brunch or whatever Sunday breakfast for me it'd be like, there's always Sunday there's always Sunday breakfast and there's always like these culture that's like that there's a culture within that that promotes consistency and those are opportunities for people to form like individual bonds and friendship so it's interesting in that example and that's just really simple that there's something that's building organizational community ideas like there's an, uh, an infrastructure and then within that building there's opportunity for individual bonds <clears throat> you also said something about it being um, elective which I think is like resonant for everybody in the sense that there needs to be the right balance of um, I think it's what you were speaking about with sex as well like I have autonomy I can elect to engage according to my predispositions and according to my skills and I can come, you know, engage in the way that suits me, you know, or maybe I just am curious, but I kind of want to dip my toe in the water. Mm -hmm. There should be a way that I can dip my toe in the water so I'm not, exactly. you know, plunging first, like diving in. So, like, what are those different ways that can be, I don't want to say institutionalized because it's totally the wrong, but, like, a part of a culture to where there's, like, opportunities that are a part of the rhythm of the group that, you know, that promote, that strengthen the idea mm -hmm. of the group which is that cultural strata, and then also mm -hmm. give people the opportunity to engage and interact. And maybe some people get to know each other really well by doing something. Mm -hmm. Like, I like doing that. Like, I, yeah. I like being physical with people. I don't have to talk too much, but over a course of time, like, we get to chatting mm -hmm. and everything happens really naturally as opposed to, like, a breakfast where I'd probably be, I'd be probably talking to the person next to me. But you know what I mean. There are different ways that people have personalities. So having, like, personality types, skill sets, levels of engagement, like that would be a nice, if you had a mix of that, yeah. that would be kind of something for everybody. We do Here's have one. some of that. We I don't know you guys. Oh, I'm from New York. <laughs> Sorry. I'm visiting. I'm from New York. Yeah. And I don't know anybody either. So these are just my but Here's one of the problems, okay, is that Jessica and I do movie night. We do it every two months. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times we've been asked, can't we do this every month? Right? And it's too much. And we ask for volunteers to help us do movie night so we can maybe get every month. Right? Everybody votes movie night, I think. Nobody volunteers. And see, that's that that's that's the problem that we encounter over and over again, uh, and I've encountered in so many groups that I've seen is that, you know, there's the couple of people that make it happen, and everybody likes it and would like more of it, but nobody's willing to step forward. And the thing that I'm finding is there's reasons for that. There are circumstances within organizations that 
that predispose people who come who would otherwise become more involved and become more active participants that discourage them from, and they're not even consciously aware of it. But this is the thing that you see when you examine different organizations and, and consider the reasons why some function better than others. The structure, it, it is that structure, that kind of thing that the Unitarians do have. There is the structure that either is conducive or encouraging to become more involved, or it can be very subtle, but it's very powerful, which can discourage that. And even the person that comes in with enthusiasm and would like to get involved is quickly pushed into this place of, well, you know, maybe not, or maybe not right now. And now that I'm beginning to see how that works, unfortunately, TCMC and Dharma Treasure have allowed that to happen. We need to be open and welcoming. We want to be. I think everybody wishes that. We want to invite, you know, the more the merrier. Please come in. Get to know us. See what we're about, you know. And try it. If you like it, then come back. And if you don't, well, it was lovely to have you here. I'm really glad you came. If you ever change your mind and want to come back again, that's fine. We all want that. But there's got to be another part to it that says, okay, you've been coming back for a while, but you're either a part of us or you're not. You know, there comes a time where the structure asks for some kind of commitment. Because the thing that I'm talking about that poisons groups is uh, it's described in this one paper as freeloaders. Not that anybody, or very few, there's a few maybe, not that very many people, though, are intentionally freeloaders. But when a group creates a culture of freeloaders, when it becomes the way the group works is that anybody can come whenever they want, doesn't cost them anything, nobody asks anything of them, you know, uh, and so they can drift in and out as they wish. <clears throat> Then they fall in a category of freeloaders. They're not bad guys who are out to exploit anything. They're somebody responding to what the structure is. is, is the structure is really saying, come and be a freeloader. And when you have a structure that is conducive to having 60% freeloaders and 30% active participants, what's going to happen is the 60% uh, uh, whatever, percent freeloaders, is going to keep eroding the core. If you're lucky and the organization has some other things going for it, like a good internal structure, a lot of attractive things, if it has a really strong ideational base that's, that's attractive, you'll get just enough people coming in to replace those that are drifting away, and it keeps on going. But it's not a strong organization. What poisons an organization is a structure that encourages people to become freeloaders. And they walk in the door not intending to become a freeloader. And as a matter of fact, they may be such a non-freeloader personality that they volunteer and they get involved and they're right in with the core and they join up and doing this and that. But enough time passes and it saps that. It drains that out of them.
A healthy organization doesn't have a few people doing everything until they just get totally burned out. A healthy organization has enough people in the wings waiting to step up that long before they get burned out, somebody who's been making a major contribution feels really comfortable in backing off for a while. That's a healthy organization. And it's an organization that doesn't encourage the freeloader culture. That requires clear task definition and autonomy. It, I think when now we're getting into this, into you know, how does this work? How, why do some groups work and some don't? Clear clarity. <clears throat> we like clarity. What makes the difference between whether we uh, walk into a freeloader culture or whether we walk into a vibrant, viable organization that we feel like we'd like to become a part of is, is there clarity? Is there a structure there that we can see and we can understand and we can make our own decisions? Do I want to be a part of this? If I do, where would I like to fit in? It's obvious what I can. You know, that thing about barn builders versus librarian. It's obvious to them that, okay, these guys are building the barn and I'm not a barn builder, but gee, they're also doing these other things and I can do that as well. That's a strong organization where that's clearly defined. Where if somebody comes in the door, they can, they can see that. You know, when they have that urge in their heart that, hey, this is a great bunch of people, and, and I'd really like to be more connected with this group, it's obvious to them exactly how they can do that. Very few human beings will say, okay, there must be some way I can get connected. Gee, I'll try to figure it out. No, most of us, we want to walk in and if we have that urge that we want to be more connected, we want it to be really obvious how that we can how we can do that. And that's really part of open arms. Part of being inviting is saying, you're welcome, we'd love to have you, and hey, if you want to be a part, look, here's what you can do. And it's got to be something that it's, you know, you don't ask them to get married on the first day. <laughs> it's, got to be, it's got to be something that they feel comfortable with. And then they get the reward of contributing, and they get to know other people because if you contribute, you got to work with other people. You start they they start becoming a part of the community. So I, I think that's that's where we need to go. I said more than I intended to, and I kept you here longer than I intended. But I'd sure appreciate it if you think about this. If you tap into a few things, let me just summarize. If you care about this path and the goal, then remember that the strength comes through community. And that the Buddha really did not promote a path that says, go off in a cave and meditate and study the text and you'll come out awakened. That was an idea that came much later and it was not Buddha's idea. It was his story, though. But it makes a good story. No, but it was his story. It wasn't his story. That's what you always hear about. Well, if you read the story, it's, it's not true. He was always a part of a community. He was always with companions. And the Sangha that he created, they, they, were, they were strong and they were together. 
they went out in small groups, but they never ceased being part of something, something larger. You know, the, the idea of going on a mountaintop in a cave. This is an idea that has certain merit for a very early part of the path. But it has very limited merit and a very limited purpose in that. So anyway, the point is that if you're serious about this path, if you're serious about awakening, the goals of the path, then part of the path is community. And, you know, there's a t-shirt. I wish I had it a long time ago. It said, uh, the only way to uh, walk out of hell is holding hands. The only way we can get out of hell is, hold, is holding hands. You know, and to the degree that we live in a troubled world and that we live troubled lives and that we feel there's a potential for much more happiness and satisfaction than I'm experiencing, community is going to be a part of it. So that's point number one. That I'm on. Point number two, is I want you to think about you personally, what community means to you, why you want community, what kind of community that you would want. And my goal is that if we can come up with a collective vision of what we, what we would like community to be, and if in the process of that we can iron out all the kinks that come from our aversions and our past difficulties and our unrealistic expectations, then we really have something to work with. So I, I ask you, please, think about this and come back. You know, do I want to be a part of a community? And if I do, what, it, what does community mean to me? And what kind of community would I like to be a part of? But please... Don't come with that back. Come back with that as a fossilized, cast in stone opinion that you have to defend against all comers. Right. Yeah. I think one thing that's worthwhile considering is what are barriers an individual has to greater. Exactly. You know, I'm a single parent. That, you what? I'm a single parent. Yeah. That um, limits my freedom. Well, see, that's. That's the thing. If we are really a community and the single parents among us belong to us, we love them, we care about them, they're part of the community, then we as a community will do whatever we can to meet the needs of that part of us, of ourselves. So yeah, think about what the obstacles are. When you're thinking about, you know, do I want to be a car part of a community? What kind of community do I want to be a part of? Think about the problems. They'll come up. They'll come up really quickly. All the yeah buts. Yeah, I'd like to, but I can't because of this. That's important. Don't put that aside. Let's get that out front. What are the yeah buts? What are the obstacles? Because com community is just a pie-in-the-sky fantasy if we don't deal with that. Correct. What is the, the corollary of what I was saying? Is What's that? But, but so what goes along with um, that yeah but means there's no, there's no place for my children. Um, yeah, well, so, so that's a really important yeah but. And so collectively, there's a, you know, there's a variety of solutions to that problem. One of which would be to say, okay, no single mothers allowed. 
<laughs> you know. In which case, you'd say, fine. <laughs> but I, I don't think we're going to say that. But, yeah, it's real. We can't, we can't pretend that we're creating a community and, and neglect the people with these problems. And that's right. The way it is right now, we, we, was it four years old, you said? Well, how old is your child? Oh, well, I have one that's 10. 10. 10 year old? One that's a teenage mom. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, who knows what the answer is? Do we have a place for the 10 year olds to fit in? Or do we make it really easy for people with 10 year olds to, uh, to come without their 10 year olds? You know? I mean, we, we, we could. We can solve that problem in many ways, or we can decide to ignore that problem, but we have to address it if, if we want a community. And there's an infinite number of possible solutions. So it's a really important thing to consider. What is standing in your way? You know, for a lot of us, certainly with... I, I've never been a joiner. I don't like joining things. I'm suspicious of groups mm -hmm. in general. You know, that's the way I am. And I'm sure some of you are that way. And if you, what I'm asking you to do is, is to look in your heart and say, okay, is that the whole story? You just don't want to be a part of anything? Or would you really like to be a part of something, but you have something standing in your way? Well, then you have to, that's what I'm asking you to do, is, is to say, okay, is it I'm just... I hate people. I can't stand being around. I have a neighbor like that. <laughs> can't stand being around people. And uh, if that's who you are, then fine. The sooner you know that, and you're honest with yourself, then you know. Uh, and and we may we may make a place for people like you to come in and sit at the back of the room and pretend you've never been here before, and we won't talk to you, and you won't talk. To you. I mean, we can we can accommodate that perhaps. But uh, what I'm saying is, look at yourself and say. You know, as I have done, and say, okay, what do I really want? And if you find in there that that there is a sense in which other people are important to you, there is a sense in which you would you see the value of community. If there's a part of you that wants to be able to help and support other people, if there's a part of you that would like to have the help and support of other people, or maybe if there's none of those, if there's just a part of you that likes convivial, like-minded people that you can pass the time with, get in touch with that. Big, I'm giving you a big task here. And the other problem we have is that when I come back two weeks from tonight, half of the people that are here tonight won't be here then. This is really where this problem comes from. I have been working for years to... You know, why do I do this? Why do I come here? Believe me, it's not because I'm making a lot of money. It's not because I'm so healthy and have so much energy that I need to run back and forth. You know, it's a, it's a 90 mile round trip for me, you know, to, to, to burn off my excess energy. I come here because I think I have something of enormous value and I want to share it. If I can find anybody who's interested, then I want to share it. Okay? And so I've been doing that for several years now. And I have the ongoing problem that when I come back two weeks from now, half of you that are here tonight 
are not going to be here. And so what do I do? Do I ignore the half that weren't here and, and, and not tell them what this whole conversation is that we had? Or do I tell them about the whole conversation and bore the socks off for half of you that do come back? You know, and, and the thing is that when I come back two weeks later, um, half of the people that were here tonight but weren't there two weeks from now will come that night. And so they'll have this early part of the picture, but they'll have no idea what went on in between. And, and half of the people that, that were here tonight and that are here two weeks from tonight, uh, they might not come four weeks from tonight because they have a, a friend visiting from out of town or there's this really great movie that they wanted to see and now it's, it's there or whatever the reason. And so we have, I mean, that's the problem from my side. And I'm not asking people to change, but I think if we had a stronger community, you would have more reasons than just what I'm telling you to come more often and more consistently. And not only that, you might have more motivation. Every one of these talks is recorded that you can listen to it in between and catch up on what you missed. So this this is this is my selfish story behind it, is I've been trying to do this thing for years. And I have this problem of people coming and going. And it's not only hard on me, it's it's hard on all of you because you have to right, you're nodding your head. How many times have you heard me spend half of the short time we have to talk just rehashing what I talked about last time? And I'm not expecting the problem to go away, but I'm seeing that I'm seeing that this would be this would make it easier. Not only that, in the, in the weeks that I'm not here, I have some really incredibly brilliant, knowledgeable, capable people who come in to with the purpose of carrying on, you know, and 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 they're worth listening to, and they're worth participating with, and they're better than I am at get, getting conversation going. They're better than I am at getting people to exchange information between them. If we had a stronger community, you would be more likely to come on those alternate Thursdays that I'm not here, too. So, there's a payoff for me in that. Not only that, you know, I love you all, and I probably have a personal relationship with more of you than any of you does with everybody else. So in a sense, I've already got, you're, you're my community in a sense that you're not yet each other's community. And that's really precious to me. I want to see you all enjoy that as well. I've said enough. I've said too much. Okay. So. Oh, but please think about these things.